Hi, my name is Yasmin Sharehi, and this is Startup Confessionals, where we interview startup founders and entrepreneurs in the Middle East and Africa. We'll learn about some of the biggest lessons these founders discovered on their journey from the personal to the professional and share how they keep themselves motivated. Today's episode is with Donna Baki. She's the co-founder and COO of Munch On, which was formerly called Lunch On, a food delivery app, and one of the region's fastest growing tech companies. The company was actually selected as one of the top 50 hottest tech companies in the world by TechCrunch. And before starting Munch On, Donna was a partner of business development at Eljal Capital, a boutique venture capital firm in the UAE. So welcome to the show, Donna. Hi, Yasmin. Thank you so much for having me. So Donna, can you briefly share your value proposition for Munch On with our audience before we go into your journey? Sure, absolutely. So what we offer is um, a food delivery platform that has a subscription in which you pay about you know, $10 a month in the UAE um, to access basic discounts from the best restaurants in the city in which you can get meals for about $5. Um, so you're getting at a, about a 50% discount on your meals um, and they're curated based off your preferences. Now, the pricing is a bit different in Saudi Arabia, but it's the same, uh, same model where you basically pay a subscription to get significant discounts on meals from the best restaurants. And the way that we're able to do that is by uh, giving restaurants these orders at off-peak hours. So you're ordering in bulk at off-peak hours, and they therefore can pass on the discounts to the users. So, you know, for example, for lunch, you would order at by 11.30, your food would be delivered between 12.30 and 1. So, you know, as a user, you would get your food at a good time, um, but a restaurant would be getting their orders a bit earlier than they usually would, and they would deliver those in bulk. Um, And the way that we manage that is through our scheduling algorithm that basically matches people in a similar area with similar food preferences um, so that those people will see the same menu or the same restaurants um, and therefore order together and the restaurants can then consolidate orders for them. So I have so many questions. First of all, why did you start this company? And I also want to get into how the pandemic might have shifted your company and kind of the vision of the next several years. So yeah, why why did you start the company? So, um, you know, I was always uh, really obsessed with food. Like that, that's just something I've been obsessed with my whole (laughs) life. Although I I had never worked in food before. And when my co-founder and I met, um, you know, we actually met under the, you know, the, the pretext that we both really should be wanted to be working in, in something in food. And what we both struggled with at the time um, was food at work. So we started off as a corporate product, actually. Um, and it was coming from you know, a problem that we felt day in and day out, where we were sick of eating from the same places over and over again. And food delivery is actually quite expensive once you look into delivery fees. Um, And like if you're ordering lunch into the office every day, it actually can get quite expensive. And so we wanted to build a solution that solved for that for, you know, everyday people and gave people the option to order lunch in from their favorite restaurants at an affordable price, but also solved for the restaurants. Like restaurants have a lot of downtime. Um, And we're all looking for ways to be more efficient and more profitable with the the kitchens and staff that they already had. And so that's how we started. We were doing corporate orders 
And, uh, you know, the pandemic, you said, how did we weather the pandemic? Um, the pandemic hit us hard because we were solely a corporate product um, up to the pandemic. Um, and, you know, we were we were doing very, very well in the corporate space. But once the pandemic hit and lockdown hit, um, our orders dropped to basically zero. Wow. And so what we quickly had to do was actually pivot um, to enable people to order in residential as well. And so our team really banded together. And within three weeks, we turned around the, the product, the tech, the ops, everything to be able to serve people um, at homes as well. Uh, and so that's really what saved us during the pandemic. And that has now really made our product even more um, you know, uh, even better for our users, what I would say is because they can use us at home, at work, anywhere they want. Um, and, uh, you know, it was definitely very, very tough at the time, but now it's, uh, it was, we definitely recognize that it was a blessing in disguise. Wow. And Donna, does that, is that why you changed the name from lunch on to munch on, or is that a different story? Yes. I mean, we were always planning on doing more than lunch, but that is why it set up the decision to move to Munchon because we were serving um, dinner and breakfast and lots of other things in residential. So it didn't really make sense to, to keep lunch in the name. And Munchon seemed like uh, a really smooth transition that made a lot of sense. Wow. And how did your priorities shift, you know, in this process, like, especially as you've grown the company and you have a lot more employees that you're managing, how are you kind of looking at the opportunity cost of day in and day out? Like, where do you, like, first of all, what do you spend your time thinking about the most and where are you prioritizing your energy? So, I mean, the, the pandemic has, um, brought forth a lot of new challenges, frankly. So, you know, the, the things that we were thinking about pre-pandemic, um, a lot of them have been put on hold. Like we were, we were thinking about expanding globally, opening, you know, in Asia and Western Europe, et cetera. And so with the pandemic, we, we definitely had to put those on hold and, and we, we will come back to them. Um, but, you know, we recognize that it's not the right time at the moment to necessarily be, be opening in a lot of these cities. Um, and instead, it, it gave us a lot of new operational challenges that um, we didn't have in the past. And so we've thankfully been able to overcome all of them. Uh, but my, you know, where is my time spent right now is really just making sure that all of these new challenges that have been thrown in our way um, are ones that we've solved for for scalability uh, and ones that, you know, we we know will make our product offering, our um, operations, our user experience even smoother than it was before, but ones that, you know, we definitely need to solve for right now. Right, right. Yeah. And I also want to go back to the, the earlier kind of um, journey on where you discovered or when you discovered you had product market fit, because as you're thinking about expanding in new markets, maybe, you know, years out at this point, uh, um, how, how are you, like, what, what does it mean for you to have product market fit? Like, what do you consider the KPIs and the, the goals that you're, you're tracking? And how was your journey with raising capital? So, I mean, as far as product market fit is concerned, um, what I would say is if you don't know if you have product market fit, then you probably don't. 
Um, product market fit for us is when it becomes abundantly clear that you're actually solving a pain point for users to the extent that they are recommending you to others and referring you. Um, and that, that positive word of mouth is enabling growth. Um, because if you have product market fit, people are actually usually quite excited about that um, and will spread the word to the friends. So organic growth is a very um, important metric. Like, of course, you can't rely solely on organic growth. In most cases, you will need to spend in a lot of cases. Um, but if organic growth has never happened um, or, or is, is not currently happening um, when you've you know, built out the product in a way that you believe is right, um, then it's probably a sign that you don't have product market fit. Um, that's at least what we've seen in our experience. Now, we've done a lot of work to test that in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, it's just always really come back to that. Like, if it's a question, then you probably don't have it. Mm. Got it. We've, we've raised a few rounds of funding already. Um, so we've, um, we have raised... Um, a few rounds. We are entering, going to be entering into our Series B soon, and um, it's it's been. A, a, listen, fundraising is a, a difficult <laughs> journey for everyone. We've been very lucky. We have amazing investors, and we have a lot of um, the top regional investors on our cap table, and have even benefited from having some of um, you know the the best investors from um the uk and the us on our cap table so we've um we, we've really been lucky uh, in that sense what i would say though is in order to be successful in fundraising you need to be fundraising when you don't need to be fundraising if that makes sense um these you know relationships with investors are ones that you know if you're asking for for my advice or what we've learned are um, you know, those relationships are ones that need to be nurtured consistently and not when you just need the money. Um, you know, ultimately, you want to bring on investors that can add value to your proposition. And the best way to figure out, you know, who are those investors is to build those relationships. And, you know, it'll be very clear upfront which investors care um, and are interested in your growth. Uh, but also if you take them along your journey and show them like, hey, this is where we are today. What are your thoughts? What do you think our biggest challenges would be? What would you want us to be focused on in the next few months? And then come back to them six months later when you're raising or a year later when you're raising and say, hey, remember that conversation we had a year ago? This is what we've done. We took your feedback. This is what happened. And you'll find that investors are a lot more vested and a lot more interested um, in you as an entrepreneur and in your business if you really are are building those relationships up front. And we've learned a ton from those conversations um, because, you know, these guys see like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of companies a year, if not more. And um, so, you know, if you come at it from a very humble place to say, hey, I have a lot to learn. This is what we're doing. What do you think? Um, I'm not looking to, to raise cash right now, but I really just wanted your opinion. Um, you'll find that people are very interested to, and, you know, are then vested in, in seeing you succeed. What are some of the kind of vetting processes and questions that some of the VCs have asked you over the years or have pushed back on, you know, through that journey? Because I think that's really interesting. I mean, you know, sometimes I've, I've heard that, uh, you know, talking to investors and, 
not having, let's say, you know, everything ready or prepared in time might also create like a reaction that uh, dismisses you kind of later in the game as well. So it's interesting that, that you, you know, you're, you're saying that you want to um, bring them along on the journey. But I think that also is because you've probably established a tremendous amount of trust, right, in that process and in that journey. So, yeah, I'm just curious, like, what are some of the the questions that come up in their due diligence? Um, you know, how, how have you seen those questions change as you started to raise more money and go through different rounds of funding? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the questions are... Um, are, are generally ones you can expect. It's more so what are the metrics um, that they're looking to see that that's often interesting for us. So, um, you know, certain investors are very data focused and others are less. And what we found is that it's very interesting to see which metrics both types of investors are interested to see at which phases. Uh, and we are, are very, very much a data-driven company generally. So that's something that we are very keen to understand. Like, what are the metrics that really matter? Um, and at each phase, we would ask that question. So like, if we were to raise our series A, what would be important for you to see? You know, when we raise our series B next year, what would be some of the metrics or milestones that would be important for you to, to see us achieve? Um, and, you know, not everyone has the same answer, but it's very interesting to see that difference and to understand how different investors think about those investments and what they are looking for. Um, and for us to then think through, okay, well, you know, what's then important for our strategy and which, which one of these metrics aligns with what we've what we've already decided our strategy is and that we should really be focused on. Um, so metrics, I think, is the key one to, to really hone in on on those conversations um, to say, you know, what is it that you would want to see? What are the sorts of KPIs you would think that we would want to hit or the milestones that you think that, uh, you know, a company should hit by the time that they're fundraising? And um, oftentimes, because they've done so many rounds of due diligence, they have interesting questions and interesting things that they'd like to see. And, you know, we then easily pull it because we are data driven, but it may be, you know, things that we would have never have pulled otherwise. They were like, oh, that's really interesting. Like, oh, that's a really interesting way of looking at retention or LTV or something like that, that we wouldn't have done otherwise. Um, and so, you know, some of those things have become, uh, you know, a part of our regular views now um, as a company. Um, you know, you, you asked like, how has that evolved? And, you know, those metrics I would say have evolved not only because of the different phases of funding. So like the questions that you'll get at seed versus series B are quite different. Those, the metrics that you'll need are quite different. I also think that um, what investors are looking for are a little bit different now um, than they were, you know, two years ago. Um, and, you know, I think that investors have become a lot more balanced um, in looking in not only growth, but also profitability or, you know, a reason to, to believe that their, you know, profitability can be hit in the near or, you know, short, short to medium term. Um, and um, so I think that's what I would say, at least what we've seen is that, you know, at the start. It, growth and product market fit is very important to show. As you um, continue to scale, growth is always important. Don't get me wrong. Growth is very, 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 very important. Um, but other metrics then come into play um, that need to be paid attention to, particularly the ones, at least today, that are built off of you know business fundamentals like gross margins, 
net margins and things like that, that show that, no, actually I have a solid business that can make money one day. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. I, you know, I, I also wanted to get a sense from you, like how you were able to um, develop your leadership skills to be able to, you know, become a CEO of this company and manage so many people. What happened in your earlier life and kind of your your early, earlier career that allowed you to kind of uh, get to this space? And how do you continue to also grow from a leadership perspective? Because I think, at least like in Silicon Valley, that's the, the thing that I see many founders um, struggle with, which is, you know, they take on a role that requires experience and wisdom. Um, and so, you know, what part of that process for you has been in uh, difficult? Like, how do you see yourself growing or con- continuing to grow as a leader as well? Yeah. Um, so you mentioned that I was working at Aljal before, but before that, I actually started my career at Procter & Gamble um, in the U.S. And that that was an incredible experience for me. Um, and that's where I learned a lot of my leadership skills um, my team building skills, things that have impacted me forever on you know the type of culture that I would want to build um, anywhere that that I work. Um, and so I'm uh, you know I'm forever thankful for my time at PNG uh, as you know that really helped shape me as a leader. Now, um, I don't I would say like I, I you know was I ready to be a COO from day one? Absolutely not. Like, I think that that's one of the things that I, like I would tell any entrepreneur or aspiring entrepreneur is you're going to need to learn on the job. Like you, mm-hmm. and that's a part of the journey, right? Like you're, you don't need to have been a COO to become a COO. You need to be ready to put in that hard work and passion and learn and figure things out and hustle and you know, really focus on leadership above all um, to then get to the place where you can manage whatever your company needs, whether it's COO, CEO, CTO, whatever it is your position is or what you aspire to be. Ultimately, when you're starting, you're like one, two, three, four, five people. Like, you know, COO of five people doesn't really mean anything (laughs) ultimately at the end of the day. It's about how you end up doing whatever is necessary to get you to the place where you want to be. And so the title, I would say, is a lot less important. It's more so about having the motivation, passion, hustle, whatever it is you want to call it, the grit, whatever it is you want to call it to build something and grow and hire people and motivate them and get them excited about your vision and build a culture and build a place that people want to work and while uh, building a product that people want to use and, you know, just be ready to come into work day in and day out, trying to build something special and don't be focused on, you know, what your title is and who you are in the company or what is going to become of your company. Really just be focused on what it is you're building and what it is you're doing day in and day out and who you're working with. Um, and, you know, you'll one, like with time, you'll just suddenly one day realize like, wow, I actually, like, we have a large organization now. <laughs> and, you know, like now it, it actually means something to be a C whatever sweet person. Um, but, you know, I, I, what I've seen is that it's, it's more so about that long journey of hard work and leadership that finally gets you there. Um, and um, it's, it's about loving what you do and really trying to build something you can be proud of ultimately. Right. 
what about, you know, the motivation that you kind of have to cultivate internally? Like, do you, do you have a practice that helps you when you're going through particularly difficult times? Like, what do you kind of have in your life that allows you to stay so motivated and also work so hard um, when you have to face adversity? Yeah. I mean, listen, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you're going to face more adversity than anything else. (laughs) I think that's something I had to learn. Um, And when, um, I mean, the thing that keeps me motivated is honestly my team. I, um, you know, I have amazing co-founders. I think as a starting point, really having strong co-founders makes such a difference, a strong partnership there with people that you can trust and that you love working with really makes the difference between night and day. And I'm so blessed to have two wonderful co-founders that have been there on the hard days right next to me. And, you know, we've gotten through it together and I think everyone has bad days and it's really about just reminding each other what we're trying to build and that, Hey, you know what, we've been through worse or we're like, there's a lot more ahead or whatever it is. Um, so I think that's part of it. I think my, like the team itself, seeing how hard other people work makes it very difficult for me to question, like, why am I doing this? Like, I just love, it just inspires me so much to see, um, our team and my team, like really caring, they really care. And, you know, that, that's something that's so inspiring for me and makes it difficult for me to lose, um, lose that motivation when I see them. And really, I think it's, uh, it's also a bit selfish. I really love what we're doing. I <laughs> love coming to work. I love the work that I'm doing. Um, and so even when times are tough, I, and like, I, I might be, you know, working on something that's not my favorite thing to work on. Like overall, I really love what I'm doing. Um, and so it just makes it easier to, to know that like, Hey, tomorrow's a new day. This is going to pass. And, uh, and, and we're going to get over this. Did you know your co-founders before you started the company? I think that's such an amazing experience to have co-founders that you love and a team that you love. I've definitely heard a lot of stories that are very different uh, across the board. So, yeah, I think that maybe the the advice that you could give people who are selecting co-founders for the first time, what what would you tell them to look for? So funnily enough, no, we didn't know each other at all before we started. <laughs> um, so, you know, I was like, I had moved to Dubai. I'd lived in Dubai a few years, but um, I didn't know that many people. And... Um, there's a long story before this, but a friend had said, you know what? I have a, a friend that works with me at Barclays. Um, he wants to do something in food too. Uh, and I was on maternity leave with my first. And uh, he said, you guys should really just talk. You should meet. And the next day, my now co-founder called me. He said, hey, do you want to meet up for coffee? And so he and I met and... Um, you know, we were just talking about, oh, like, what have you explored in food? What are you interested in doing? And we started exploring different ideas and gave each other homework and said, okay, you know, let's meet again next week. We'll each look into these different things. And, you know, we just kept giving each other homework and next steps. And, um, you know, within a few months, we were basically like, okay, so 
should we quit? Like now what? And so we both quit our jobs a few months later saying, okay, let's do this. And it was from how good our experience was working with each other. And, and honestly, both of us had had previously not so great experiences working with, um, with, with others that when we, we enjoyed working with each other so much, we knew that this was different. Um, and our third co-founder was actually our first employee. We, uh, neither me and my, my co-founder had any tech background and we were a food technology <laughs> company and we had started off working with an agency, which was a disaster. And we were like, okay, well, we need to, we need to hire someone internally to help us build this. And we interviewed, you know, like at least a hundred people for this role. Nice. And, um, Lo and behold, our last interview, my co-founder was like, I don't really want to go. Anyway, he decided to go and we met our third co-founder, um, who's amazing, really, really amazing. He was our first engineer and uh, he built everything from scratch himself. Uh, and, you know, he's he's now, you know, our the, the third leg of the team. And so I would say... You know, a part of it is is definitely luck. We're blessed to have found each other, but um, and a part of it is is having tested each other out, worked with one another, um, and knowing that there's also roller coasters in you know any sort of relationship, right? Like there are going to be times you disagree. There are going to be difficult situations, and ultimately, if you um, enjoy working with one another, really truly care about one another as people, trust one another. Um, that makes the world of difference because in the roller coaster of entrepreneurship, as you put it in the start, um, you really need people you can count on. And that makes the world of difference. Wow. That's powerful. And I can't believe that you interviewed 100 people and then got to your final co founder, the last one. That's amazing. Donna, what sort of things have surprised you the most on your journey? Oh, <laughs> what, have what has surprised me the most? Honestly, I think, and maybe this, this sounds silly, but it, it doesn't get easier. <laughs> like, that's something that surprised me a bit. Like, when it started off, we thought, like, oh, it's just because we need to prove ourselves. And then, you know, with time, there was, like, always some new milestone or new thing you need to hit. And what I found is, you know, no matter how much you grow, no matter what milestone you hit, there's always a bigger one. There's always a bigger challenge ahead. Um, and so it doesn't get easier, um, but you get more um, conditioned in some ways. Like you have gone through, you know, the gauntlet or several gauntlets that you can then, you know, handle it with a smile um, or have learned how to handle it um, in much better ways. But I think to me, that was actually a surprise because I thought, you know, once you hit a certain point, like, oh, you've proven yourself, it gets, it gets better. I mean, no, it doesn't, but it's, it's, it's just as fun. It's a new challenge. <laughs> That's a very important point. Yeah. I mean, I think we all assume that there's like glory days ahead and yeah, but you are probably managing more people and taking on more responsibility. Um, but sounds like you've got an amazing team set up. So uh, very exciting. Donna, can you tell people, you know, what's your main takeaway? What do you want to tell the, the audience uh, about maybe your journey, about, um, you know, advice that you'd give to your former self? Like what's sort of your big takeaway? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple of things. I think the, the, 
the big one for me is um, no one's ever ready to start their own business or to get on the this journey or roller coaster. Like you can never fully prepare for it. Um, so it's really about just being open to where life is going to take you and really say, you know what, this, I know this is crazy. I know this is going to be um, something like a roller coaster, as we've said, but um, I'm going to follow my path. I'm going to follow my journey. I'm going to listen to my heart, however you want to put it. Um, and even if I don't feel ready, I have enough trust in myself that once the challenge comes, I will make myself ready. I will do the hard work that is needed to ensure that we'll be ready. Um, and that, um, I don't need to be, I don't need to know everything today. I'm going to learn along the way. And I think that's something that people are often like they get scared because it is scary. It's risky. It's scary. There's lots of things ahead. Um, and you know, people feel like they need to have it all sorted or they need to feel like they're, they have enough experience or, um, any of those things. And the truth is you will never have enough experience. You will never know what it's like. You're never going to know until you do it. Mm. And so it's really about just being open to where life is going to take you, having faith in yourself and being ready to put in that hard work um, and knowing that you will figure it out. Um, and um, nobody, nobody does before they start. I think that's, that's a big one for me. Um, and I think the second piece is that, it's so important to test. You know, we didn't talk about the product and our product journey, but testing and iterating and learning as you go is so incredibly important. Like, please don't build something out before testing it manually with users, like <laughs> in some, you know, like fast way that can get you some feedback because no matter what you have in your mind, it's not going to be exactly what users want. And so, you you know, one thing that we really learned is testing and learning and failing and testing and learning and failing quickly makes the world of difference before you really put in, you know, those hundreds of hours of effort of building something that may meet nobody's need. Mm. Amen. Yeah, I a thousand percent <laughs> love that and agree with that second point on uh, test, fail, iterate. I think, um, you know, I've worked with so many different startups, like I've probably launched hundreds of products at this point. And that's always been kind of like the, the keystone is getting as much feedback from the customer as possible. But so many companies kind of think it's either a waste of time or that it, you know, when it's done, it's just for specific product roadmap feedback as opposed to real, you know, true feedback on the direction of the product, the value proposition, you know, even marketing insight and fundamentals. So yeah, it's such an important point. I love that you pointed that out. <laughs> uh, so Donna, are there any resources that you can point folks to in order to learn more about you? Of course, they can follow Munch on, but if you can just uh, provide the the website link and where they can find you online. Sure. Um, so it's www.munchon.com. I think there are a few interviews about me. I'm not going to lie. I'm really bad at social media. <laughs> like I think I've posted like three times in my life and they're embarrassing posts, <laughs> but <laughs> you can follow me at, at DF Baki. There's a pretty funny picture of me there um, stuck to a moon bounce. Um, but otherwise there are a few articles. Munchon is actually probably the best way to follow me. They, you know, our social media team does a great uh, job of posting any articles or podcasts or anything that I am. Um, 
that we do. Um, but yeah, I think that's probably the best way. Amazing. Amazing. Donna, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me, Asleen. I really enjoyed it. Oh, me too. And for our audience, thanks for joining and for listening to Startup Confessionals. 